Boy, it's good to see you again. You too, man. <laughs> it's been so long. It has been. Um, and welcome to the Daddy Club. Oh, yeah. Thank you, man. <laughs> and welcome to the Grandfather Club. That's amazing. Thank you. Huh? Yeah. And how old are your kids now? Uh, our son is 40. Taichi oh, is 40. Boy. And, and okay. our daughter, Maya, is 35. Dang. Okay. And their birthdays are coming up pretty quickly. Wow. And... Um, and uh, Maya's, uh, Maya's son, who's our grandson, yeah. Leon, is is uh, just is going to be uh, two years old in a few days. Amazing! I'm hitting the 18 month mark with my daughter. Unbelievable! Um, best, best thing in the world. It's it? amazing. Yeah. And it, I used to be the guy who was like, the latest I'll ever be to something is on time. That was always my mantra. It was like, I'm never going to be late. Yeah. And I we scheduled for 10 a.m. today. I pulled up at 10.02, but now I've become a dad. It's like she gets that extra two minutes every time when she wants it. You know, It's interesting how that is very magnetic. Like She says something, I'm like, okay, everything else of importance falls away. Mm-hmm. And laser focus in on her. It's amazing. Um, I, you're having said that, I should just point out that uh, as my clock... Uh, reached at 10 a.m. Uh-huh. Your car pulled up. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but that worked. Our meeting was scheduled for nine. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, sitting here and, and talking to you and not mentioning weather report is probably like um, talking to a great painter and not mentioning maybe their greatest work. Uh, but because I think most people know that about you by now, I, I want to focus in on something really specific that's been on my mind as I listen to all your music the past few days to prepare for this conversation. How did you arrive at storytelling as not just a drummer, but as a musician? Because this prolific sideman catalog from such an early age, Big Band, Stan Kenton, and these mm. large ensembles, plus all the, through weather reports, steps ahead, like all these things that everyone knows, but also this undercurrent of solo albums focused so much around the trio. And was, so two questions really, was the trio format the smaller thing and the more focused and and compact thing a reaction to the larger and louder ensembles you had spent so much time working with early on? And how did you get to storytelling as an artist from a sideman? Well, uh, I'll do my best to answer the storytelling sure. uh, part of the question first. Um, I think that was a direct result of, of Joe Zavinal's advice to me, which was, uh, you, know, you should always compose when you play. Mm. And that combined um, with uh, innumerable uh, conversations uh, with my best friend from high school, uh, a director named Jack Fletcher. He's also a teacher of drama. And um, we we would speak often and a lot about intentionality and being specific. And this is something that, in my work uh, writing music for theater, I just always hear the directors talking to the actors about, you know, uh, whether they were being specific enough, mm-hmm. what, what was what was their intention doing something, and you know, theater is is the ultimate form of of storytelling. Sure, you know, it has been forever. So uh, it just all made sense to me, 
uh, in terms of, of drumming. Um, now, this, this wasn't any kind of noble quest. <laughs> um, it, it rarely is, but it, it usually comes out of a dissatisfaction that we have when we hear ourselves back and just sure. go, you know, that's tired sounding or that's dumb or uh, that feels pushed. How much did you record yourself? Uh, early in your career, uh, early in your N- not that much. Okay, to my detriment. Okay, um, you know when when I would uh, have to bear witness to my playing, like in a recording studio, uh, you know, it, it felt like Judgment Day, and and was always a bit of a shocking moment because, like, you know, I knew what my use the word intentions again. I knew what my intentions were. Right. You know, I was already getting a clear idea of what I wanted to sound like. And why was that? Because I just listened to a lot of music. Sure. So I was, you know, I'm just trying to, here, I'm wearing my Art Blakey <laughs> T-shirt. You know, I was trying to do what my drumming heroes did and in the context of these other musical heroes. Sure. And then, and then I would shortchange the music. You know, it just wouldn't come out okay. like I wanted it to. Um, and... And so I would have to listen along with everybody else, you know, when the record came out. Um, finally, I, uh, when I started observing myself on video. Um, like early Kenton Well, uh, the, uh, Kenton was just once or twice, you know, like we, okay. we would play uh, at a, there was a high school somewhere in Pennsylvania and they, they had a video Oh. Know, audio visual club or something and they videotaped one of the concerts and, and that was kind of revolutionary at the time to have that it, it was pretty advanced oh, uh, it was a it was a reel-to-reel uh black and white video system oh. that sony had and my dad had one similar <laughs> wow um uh and then eventually they they went to the cassette kind of like sure. the betamax thing yep. but in the old days it was just reel-to-reel and it was black and white uh but I was uh, I was not pleasantly surprised uh, by observing myself how how choppy I looked. Oh, from a look perspective. From yeah, a from a look perspective. perspective. And, okay. and I said, well, okay, that's starting to make a little bit of sense. And, and a few more times over the years, uh, you know, and uh, again to to quote Joe Zavinal, I've told the story before. You know, he, he came up to me one night after a concert and he goes, you know, man, you were playing this beat tonight. It didn't feel right. And I turn around and look at you. Didn't look right neither. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I said, "What do you mean?" He said, oh, "You got your shoulders all hunched up." You know. Oh. So I went back to the hotel room and sat in front of the mirror on the edge of the bed. And, uh, now, all the years I've been playing, it wasn't until I was on tour with uh, uh, Diana Krall, um, and. Yeah, this is when I was 50 years old. Okay. And my daughter was going to see an uh, Alexander Technique specialist. And Alexander, for those of you who don't know, uh, that was the surname of of the guy that developed this awareness of of body posture and how it can either help or hinder the expressive process. That's about... Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, he uh, He was an actor... And uh, he was losing his ability to project his voice. He would go see one doctor after another, and he said, there's nothing wrong with your voice. And he realized he was blocking his own 
Because of his posture? Yeah. Okay. I think uh, more or less alignment, all these sure. things. Uh, so uh, a friend of mine uh, first, uh, well, I, I remember back in Indiana University, um, some of the classical students were, were into Alexander Technique. And then uh, an old friend of mine, Michelle Makarsky, a wonderful violinist who uh, has recorded two or three albums with Keith Jarrett. Oh, wow. Um, she uh, had become a practitioner and was just extolling the virtues, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I decided to accompany uh, Maya to her session, and I booked a short session for myself. And uh, so when it was my turn, the uh, Alexander Technique uh, practitioner um, said, well, I, I know nothing about drumming, uh, but uh, why don't you show me how you sit? And this is, I think, a go-to for, unless you're in a right. profession or activity where you stand. So I sat with my kind of hunched over bad posture. Yeah. And he said, all right, let's try something. So it was sitting up, and he gave me the imagery of of my tail, like, the, like, like a bird's right. tail of feathers, sprouting out behind me. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And, and straightening up, and, and the, the incredible thing when I... So I tried this when I got back on, on the road with Diana. Was that I opened up to the rest of the band. Okay. Because I was closing off. I, you know, the, the music was taking a direction that I wasn't 100% comfortable with. Wow. You know, so it Diana was having had, an impact on your musical choices. Hmm? It was having an impact on your musical completely, choices. Completely. Wow. But the, the musical slash spiritual Right. choices because I was like I don't like this music I, therefore I don't like I'm not liking these people yeah. That's, you know, I was kind of like what am I doing here and then this allowed me to receive the beauty of, of what they were doing wow. and and it, and that makes you feel better about yourself yeah. you know <laughs> uh, and I was like just the simplest change of posture That's had, a, had, a, had, had not only a physical but a spiritual effect and and of course this helped the music um and and so you know functioning as as a as a teacher at usc i'll be leaving the university at the end of the semester yeah just to have more time at home nice but um you know it involves all these things and and uh my teaching method i'm going off on a tangent please uh, thanks. Uh, has never been, you know, s- uh, sticking to the lesson plan. Uh, uh, you know, it's good. <laughs> to and, the benefit of all your students. I'm well, sure. uh, ultimately, uh, yeah. some of them, you know, like, where's this going? Right. Kind of thing. Um, but uh, it, it's always really rewarding to get the feedback finally. Like you, It's usually about a year or two after they've graduated, and all of a sudden you get these amazing letters. You're like, wow. You know. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, in terms of the storytelling, um, uh, I would credit having been fortunate enough to work in the theater world um, that both of my uh, children – work in the arts uh, my son tai chi is is an editor the film and video editor and 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 maya is a, an actress and, and writer right. and director um and, and my buddy jack you know uh, so uh 
you know, for all the the high the high talk of art or the or the talk of high art, yeah. Um, uh, I think you'll agree with me that ultimately all all we really need to do is just play what we want it to sound like. Right. Right. What do you want it to sound like? For sure. That brings up an interesting thing. Of uh, I heard Tiger Woods talk about this as he warms up on the golf range, and he has a real versus feel when he's talking about looking back at his video. Real versus feel. Feel. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he knows what it felt like when he hit the shot. We know what it feels like when we play, but what was the reality? Uh, I think we have a distorted perception of what is actually happening in the moment. Um, and, and some of the best of us can, or best people, best players or whatever, can bring the real and the feel like really in line. Like he said, when he's playing the best, mm. what he feels and what he wants, like you said about knowing what you want it to sound like and playing the way you want it to sound like, those two things kind of align. Have you ever thought about that? Well, it, it, this is fascinating because I'm, uh, I'm getting excited um, because uh, a thing I, I, I work on with, with my students, um, when you said feel, I, I, because of my bad hearing, I thought you might have said fear. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that plays a part somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, everyone's always afraid of, of, of someone judging. Yes. You know. Uh, but uh, you know, if if I'm playing and on uh, and I'm in a, a enclosed room and on the other side of the door, uh, Steve Gadd standing there? Mm-hmm. No, he's not standing there. Or, uh, would that change? Right. The, no, the change, reality is the it's, choices, it yeah. is what it is. And so. Once you can embrace that, well, he might be there, he might not. And if he's there, then that means he probably dug it. I mean, right. you know, <laughs> it's always a drag when you see somebody get up and, and leave. And, and leave. <laughs> so I never get nervous if somebody's there, you know, because I just, wow, that's nice that they're, that they're listening. But um, it was Bill Evans, the, the pianist, who uh, said in, he did a series of interviews with his brother. Okay. And... Uh, I think the brother asked about uh, does he play differently if it's a larger audience versus a smaller one and he said he could be uh, in a closet with no one else present and it wouldn't change the relationship he's having with the music at that moment That's amazing. which is kind of a beautiful thing see I, I heard you once uh, talk about uh, uh, Neil Neil Pitt uh, like, and, and talking about what he does in a stadium, a drum solo, you know, keeping 50,000 people. And you said, I wouldn't know how to do that. No. But I disagree. Like, <laughs> I think you would do great, first of all. Um, but there is a certain element of that about being able to play to the room, not change what you are saying emotionally or, 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 or not changing your personality, but perhaps playing to the situation a little more that maybe comes with experience. Did well, this? I mean, this is the genius okay. of um, drummers uh, like you know, Jeff Beccaro, J.R. Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the list could go on and on. Um, You're talking about studio guys, the studio guys. Yeah, okay. yeah, so studio drummers recording onto tape before we had the ability to adjust things mm-hmm. using a computer. Um, how they could compose, come up with a part that worked the best for that song, 
and um, I mean, you know, uh, James Gadsden, um, Hal Blaine. I mean, yeah. you listen to uh, multiple takes that these drummers would do, and it's just phenomenal how focused they can stay and build on it. Now, another great drummer, um, but he straddled an interesting fence, was Earl Palmer, because Earl was... He was a jazz guy, and okay. and, and I, I think he, he couldn't resist the improvisational urge. Now, when, uh, when most of us jazzers do studio stuff, um, yeah, we get in our own way because we can't... It's very hard to play the same thing over and over. I mean, the joke is Shelley Mann defined jazz as you know, someone uh, never playing the same thing once. <laughs> yeah, fair play. <laughs> but you know, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, so, the, the 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 you know, like Neil, mm-hmm. um, he 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 practiced what he did, and there's no. There's no judgment on that one way sure. or the other. I mean, it's just it's it's, it's you know the, the 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 result is is, is what counts. And, right. and um, one gratifying thing, and and he said that that not only uh, he noticed it, but his band noticed it was that he was taking more chances after mm-hmm. as a result of our working together. Um, and I I never got a chance to hear how that manifested. Okay. So. You never heard the band live, no. Okay, no. Um, and uh, and I, I never really got to, you know. Um, uh, okay, so sorry. We, we cut. All good. All right. The the guy in Rush, the uh, Getty the, Lee, huh? Getty Lee, Getty, Getty Lee. Lee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Right before the lockdown, I was uh, flying back from Vienna with my wife, and we had, um, uh, it was one of those, you know, you have to buy your own ticket kind yeah. of thing. So we, uh, we we found a pretty good business class deal on Air Canada. Gotcha. Like going through Toronto. Yeah, I, know the, I know it well. <laughs> okay. So um, the, uh, the flight from Toronto to Los Angeles, I noticed Getty Lee and, and his wife, I assume it's his wife. A um, couple rows back on the other side, up in first, and I, I, you know, I'm not sure what stopped me because I, I, I could have, you know, hey, yeah. I, yeah, I just want to express my condolences, right? Um, and then I was thinking I would give the flight attendant a note, please pass this, sure. to, but um, the the vibe I was feeling like he was like he didn't want to be bothered. I found out later. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Don Perry called me, and um, we realized, holy cow, Getty was flying to L.A. The next day was a memorial service oh, wow. for Neil, okay. and and Don was 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 saying they, he felt really bad because I was supposed to have been invited and I wasn't, and if the Rush people had known, oh man, but Neil's one, yeah. I, I know the whole thing. Um, and I said, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I, I was on the flight. Right. That's what he was doing. Sure. Coming to L.A., I, I, I didn't know because I didn't converse with him. Um, 
and yeah, that was a sad thing. But I, I, I enjoy the the memories of of when Neil came and and our oh, uh, our follow up conversations sure. after every session. Well, it's interesting you talk about Jr. and Jeff Picaro and those guys being able to make that part, create that part, and play it over and over again. I last three days been listening to you nonstop in a multitude of situations and yeah okay so with kenny wheeler and dave holland probably not the same notes no combination played ever again uh but what about when you get in a session for magnetic for instance like and when you you're that period of the 80s and into the early 90s and sequences and you know i was trying to craft parts and and whenever i I, I mean that's what i'm asking because it sounds that way you know that's we i was doing the best i could i mean and whenever i would um, throw in something dumb. I remember one time uh, Mike Minieri turned to me on a playback and he said it was it was, it was really good up until that. he just he said why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I was like I don't oh, know why so good. you know I had uh, so um, uh, but I had this beautiful moment and and I didn't understand it until years later but. I was, um, I was a bachelor. I'm, I'm living in, in in New York, and I've got this nice, nice co-op apartment. And um, I put on this uh, new album. I guess at the time it was a Michael McDonald album, the, okay. the one that had a, a "Keep Forget." And, oh wow! Okay, uh, big big record. Yeah, yep. big record. Um, but the tune that 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 I kind of zeroed in on was um, was a song called That's Why. Okay. And, it's, and it has Jeff playing. And I, I listened to it again, and I listened to it again, and I started crying as I was listening to it. And, you know, I like to think that uh, the, the, the beauty of the performance uh, the 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 perfection that I was hearing. So it was kind of like uh, you know for me it was like seeing the Pietà or something. It was just like <laughs> wow. you know holy cow. But the I think the other reason to be honest that I was crying was because that was a moment when I realized I'll never be able to do that. This as close as I like to think I can get to this. You know, and the drumming was always competitive. You want to you sure. kind of want to be the leader of the pack. Yeah, it's uh, in some way, sure. some angle. Um, and and it, it was this kind of wonderful moment, as painful as it was, realizing I'll never be able to do that. That's just beat. That's beyond the reach. Wow. And and I'm getting close because I'm in this laboratory now. And this was right when we were doing those Steps Ahead yeah. albums. And when you talk about the pack, that's a pretty serious pack at that time as well. It's you and Steve, Gad and Smith and Jordan, all the Steves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of Steves. <laughs> a lot of Steves. But Will and Hiram and all those guys. It, was that your hang in New York with Will and Hiram and that like 21st Street band a little bit? Ah. The twenty fourth, twenty fourth three band. Sorry, were you kind of interchangeable with Steve in some of those situations? I, or? I, it, uh, Don Grolnick was was my hub, well, right for that. Um, so, uh, uh, 
this is no exaggeration. When, whenever I played with Will, um, any number of times, he, he, might, he might say, um, hey, can I... Uh, he just quietly ask if he could redo his part. Okay. And he somehow would remember exactly where I might have done this or that, and he made it work. Wow. But this is Will Lee we're talking about. By yeah, the way. Will Lee. And, and, he, and he'd never say, like, let me go in here and fix it because you, you messed it up. He would just do it, but yeah. I, I could hear what he was doing. Yeah. I was like, wow. You know. Amazing. Um, so it was always great to get to play with him. Um, uh, yeah, but New York was filled with incredible musicians. Yeah, and, and of course. I just wonder what that... Everyone kind of had their hub, like you say. I, yeah, yours was Don Grodick. And what was... Um, my my hub, sorry, you know, my my hub started to shift from, you know, I went to New York to 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 start working with Steps, right. which became known as Steps Ahead. Did you do Wonderlust before you moved to New York? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I did this Mike Benary album, Wonderlust, which was because Mike's son had heard me play with Weather Report at the Beacon, and gotcha. he was like, "Dad, you should you should call this guy." Did Brick? Call you a fool for or something, or say you were nuts for leaving Weather Report. Did I hear that once? Did Mike Brecker say you were nuts for leaving Weather Report to join Steps Ahead? Is that an urban myth? Well, no. It's, it's um, so <laughs> sorry. So I just, Steps, just Steps, Steps. Uh, we were in Japan. Yeah, and I think we were doing a tour, uh, and Kazumi Watanabe was, oh, yeah, was playing with us. Yeah, and that's the first time I worked with Mike. Um, uh, that's Breco that's Manieri. Uh, uh, Manieri. Manieri. Okay. I had I had worked with Brecker briefly um, uh, on a Michelle Columbier okay uh, album, uh, and we did a live showcase at the Bottom Line. Um, when I was still living in Los Angeles, right. so uh, so uh, Manieri flies me to New York, and I'm uh, I'm the other drummer. Steve Jordan played on some tracks, and I yep. played on a couple tracks. It was just one night we recorded at um, Media Sound. Okay. Um, fabled studio yeah. on 57th Street in New York. Um, and uh, Warren Bernhardt was in the band, Tony Levin. Ooh. Uh, Sammy Figueroa was playing percussion, uh, Mike Brecker and Kazumi and, and yeah. Mike Benieri producing. Um, and as a result of that, then Michael called me to work on Wanderlust. Okay, and that's when I met Don Grolnick, and then, um, and then Grolnick brought me to New York to play with his band for a few nights at Seventh Avenue South. It was right. his first gig as a band leader. Yeah, I think I have bootlegs of that. Yeah. It is incredible. And, <laughs> and he, uh, I remember he, he had band books made up, and he spent a fortune just having the music <laughs> copied. Not to mention flying me in. Yeah, um, and. Uh, and then I think Don sort of vouched for me to uh, to play with Steps mm -hmm. uh, because Steve Gadd was with his schedule and things right. was, was was not keeping up with you know Mike Minieri really wanted the band to work more sure and um, and the the band had a lot of meetings. Uh, okay, <laughs> and a lot of a lot of psychodrama would, would always seem to get played out at okay. these meetings, um, and and 
uh, Maniri wanted everyone to commit, make more of a commitment. And, and both Mike Brecker and Don Rolnick, um, were of the mind, uh, how did they put it? They said, we'll be there for any gig you book. Just don't ask me to commit. Wow. Okay. Because, you know, that I, I, I want to know that if, if, in Don's case, I remember he specifically mentioned, if Linda Ronstadt books me for something, sure. I want to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was interesting because um, uh, for for Mike Manieri, it was this existential question. If this band's going to make it, we need to commit. And he was intrigued by Weather Report, and he saw me a little bit as I was a guy that could share a few secrets okay. you know, along the way. <laughs> this is how we did this. And, and oftentimes I'd say, well, you know what, what the band would do here is yeah. – uh, yeah, sure, it's a clunky edit, but we'll just overdub a cymbal crash, and who cares? You know? Nice. <laughs> so, um, so at any rate, we're in Japan, and um, we had all just committed to doing a, a tour that that upcoming summer in right. Europe. And then I get a call from Weather Report, the management, and they said, "Hey, Peter, Joe, and Wayne have changed their minds. They." Uh, because I committed to the tour because Weather Report was so not break, yeah. going to do anything, and then they said uh, they've changed their minds. Uh, you know, they 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 need to do some touring, um, purely financial reasons, okay. and uh, I'm sure artistic as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I said, "Well, oh my goodness, I've just committed to doing this other tour," and and, and uh, they they just said very matter of factly, "Well, you need to make a decision." And uh, when? And the guy was like, well, now. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm going to keep my word with the, the guys I just gave it to. Right. And he said, okay, we understand. No problem. We'll let Joe and Wayne know. Damn. And so I hang up the phone. It, it was like in the evening, mm-hmm. however late, 9 or 10 at night. It was dark, I remember, because it was like this time of year, yeah. February or March. And... uh I'm a little bit dizzy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, this is, what, five years at this point you've been in the band? Yeah. More or less? Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm feeling immediately like, wow, this feels nice. Wow. Like, okay. I like this. I'm like, wow. So I, I feel, well, I, I need to go for a walk. So uh, I, I just step outside the room, and, and it's a big hotel, and I, I'm walking towards the... Uh, the elevator uh, area, and there's Mike Brecker. And I said, <laughs> Mike, guess what? He goes, what? I said, I just quit Weather Report so I can do the, the Steps tour this summer. And he just looked at me and he said, what are you, nuts? And then he walked away. And I, was, <laughs> I wasn't wow. expecting that reaction. Yeah. I thought. Um, wow. And, and so that was that. And that... One thing, I mean, we talk about Don Gronick a little. One thing uh, I love about looking at the history, of your recorded history, is these associations you have with, you know, it's not even a handful. It's like a bunch of musicians, maybe 15 or 20 musicians, but they are long-lasting relationships that have spanned sometimes a dozen, sometimes even 20 albums. When you look at Abercrombie, you look at Pasqua, you know, your trio with Carp, your trio with Derek, you know, there's these amazing relationships that are sort of woven through the decades. Mm. Um, I want to go back to Mark Johnson. I know a lot of people are going to be bass players listening to this podcast. And it really sounded like you guys, 
of course it was unique, but it sounded like you worked something out, like you figured some things out together. That seemed like a very important relationship of a bass player and a drummer. Can you talk about that? Is that yeah? No, you're, is that I mean, accurate you're, you're, or is that that's very accurate? Oh, okay, I mean, uncannily oh. accurate. Um, when Mark and I were on tour, I mean, we we met um, at a jam session uh, that Ross Trout put okay. together. Wow. And we did a gig, and I can't remember. I don't, I don't think I don't think Lyle was on it. I, I, uh, maybe Paul McCandless. It was in Poughkeepsie, okay. New York. It was, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I I just moved to to the city, um, but it sure was fun. And um, when Mark and I started playing more and more with John Abercrombie, and then we would be doing touring um we uh we talked about what we were doing a lot and we would uh often be on these concert bookings that uh or billings where uh-huh. we were it was a festival where there was another band playing and and so we we would listen to the these other rhythm sections and then talk about what we liked and what we didn't like so it wasn't just like Wow, that you know that's not hip. Um, but it was trying to find the things know, our, our, that really our, worked. Our shit said very right, right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> things you could implement. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, Joachim Kuhn mm-hmm. had this trio with J.F. Jenny Clark, an amazing French bassist, yep. and Daniel Humer, and uh, it was pretty free. <laughs> yeah. And to me, it just—it was like um, finding a hidden waterfall, and their playing was just like water coming down. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom just how how flowing it was. Wow! That they, that there was never the wrong jagged. It just, it, no matter, you know, and it could be very rhythmic. It could be any number of things, but it just flowed so effortlessly. Um. And that's where we began to figure out um, how to listen to one another without imitating one another when we played. So when Mark would do a thing, like, um, let's say the tempo, boom, 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 so he would he would push yeah and what made it work was that i didn't go with him it's easy enough to do you know you can hear and you can kind of follow each other around but then we found it was more interesting the the elasticity became more apparent by not necessarily following i think you might have just revealed what it is i like so much about it and i've never put two and two together (laughs) so so um it was just and and yet you know okay uh, one of my favorite recordings that we did i get goosebumps just thinking about it is uh uh, an album we did with rick margitza hope hope oh my song of hope one of my favorite albums of all time it's amazing yeah oh with Ayato and Joey Calderazzo. Yeah. Steve Cardenas, I want to say, maybe? Or? Steve Urquiaga. Steve Urquiaga, okay. Sorry, he was playing yeah. guitar. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's such a great record. <laughs> uh-huh. so, so Mark's playing is so, for lack of a better word, noble. 
it's so and so grounded, and his sound is so. You know, he always got such a beautiful, full. I thought it was quite majestic. Yeah, majestic, totally. And and then that was the first time I really got to play with Ayerto. Okay. And and it's like I do a thing, and Ayerto could complete the thought. And I'm looking over like, holy cow! This is that was my first gig was with Ayerto. Really, my 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 first memory of musicianship on that level is is him. Is that thing you're talking about? Yeah, Yeah. It's just, it, it will live with me to the end. It's unbelievable. Right. It just lifts the room up. You're just sort of like, wow. And then Calderado's doing yep. the burn. Yeah. And Rick is... And the beautiful thing about that tune, what I love about that tune is you never are consciously aware of when it's come back yeah. to the beginning of the form. Yes. So Rick's cycles and forms are sort of open. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. It's, it's brilliant. so great. It's brilliant. And... Uh, Matt Pearson produced that. I, yep. uh, that, that was, um, you know, the, 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 the rest of the album, okay, but that tune for me is just one of my all-time favorites. Uh, everything about it, the sound that James Farber got, uh, we did that at Power Station. Right. Um, I mean, you've just mentioned all the classic elements that go into a jazz <laughs> album of that era, right? Like the musicians and Farber and Power Station. Yeah. All right, uh, Interesting uh, moment. I don't know if it was that album. I okay. think it might have been a later album. Uh, and I was beginning to put my home studio together. And I was, uh, and, and at the time, I was also working quite a bit in Europe. Uh, I think at this stage of the game, I was I was doing a fair amount of work at the uh, WDR radio station okay. in Cologne. And so I'm checking out the microphones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, boy, if... Uh, uh, Neumann 47 <laughs> that would yeah. wow that would really yeah. you know, save my money and, yeah. and so I said James I said, can I ask you a question he goes sure Pete what what's the one microphone I should get and I'm hoping he will confirm the 47 the 47 <laughs> and he just he goes you want my honest answer or honest opinion I said of course he said you're not going to like it yeah. I said what he said an SM57. I went, no. He, I said, really? He went, yep. Yeah. I said, why? He said, if if I could only choose one microphone, he said, I would choose that. It can yeah. do it can do any, yeah. everything and anything. And and so, yeah. And did you know, according to my friends at Shure, uh-huh. that the mic element inside the SM7 mm-hmm. is exactly the same as the 57? As a 57? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Just a different... Different brains around it. Wow, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, yeah. It's, well, you know, I'm no expert uh, me at, at any of this stuff, but it's it's. I know it's what fun. I like. I, yeah, I know what I like. Yeah. And, um, but since we're talking about microphones, um, I'm, I'm going to introduce a topic that... Please. Maybe you would have gotten around to, but um, when I was doing the Steely Dan... Tour. Alive in America, right? Oh, that's the yeah. album. Yeah. From it. But, um, you know, we're playing much larger spaces than I was used to. And the drummer's first impulse is when it's supposed to be loud, you want to fill the space. And it's right. impossible to fill that big of a space. And I, I, I just know myself well enough that if I push beyond a certain level, I'm just not happy with, with the way I play. 
Okay. Because I don't have the, the, the depth of technical resources to be able to play that loud for that long. Okay. I, I think when I was younger, yeah, I, I had pretty good chops. Um, so, uh, you know, even though Steel it down, I was in pretty good shape for it, but I just, I knew, I knew my limitations. Anyway, my mantra, every night before I'd go on stage, I'd find a quiet place. Literally, I did this. And I would, I would just say the words, the name. Jim Keltner, over and over to myself. <laughs> That's great. Let the mic do the, the work. work. Yeah. Right. And uh, I, I would welcome if someone would correct correct me if I'm wrong here. But um, you know, a microphone is a bit like a speaker. You've got sure. the element that that moves, and uh, it can only move so far, right? right. So um, if you start let's say in the case of a snare drum, really hitting it hard, then it, it reaches the point, and right. then what? No more. There's a ceiling. <laughs> yeah. So then the gain structure has to has to be adjusted. Right. Um, and and so, the for me, the biggest drum sound, I mean, you, you, sure, you, you, you excite the air and the molecules when you hit it a certain... Uh, you get that power, but um, boy, when when the microphone can do the work in terms of recording, right? I mean, I, the, something that's always struck me about you is like your first instinct when it comes to an accent isn't to use the hoop. Yeah, like it's like you can you at this angle you can be unbelievably uh, uh, I don't know dynamic and musical. It doesn't all have to be you know. And I th- I think one of the worst things that you can do is is to you know use the hoop head combination to overuse it right because right, right. it just um especially well, you know this from being on stage especially yeah. if you're in a live hall it just eats everything up well i was thinking about one gig we did in italy where i was the only thing that was amplified right, and we right. were in a like a church, church hall or something church, remember this yeah. one yeah uh-huh. so acoustic piano pete and me and i was the only thing that was amp- i was petrified absolutely most nervous I've ever been in my life. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> because you know how those live rooms get. And right. any amplified instrument, as with a kick drum or anything with a mic on it, just fills the space and reverberates and it's really hard to control if you overplay. So first of all, it was the quietest I've ever played. It's probably one of the most satisfying gigs I've ever played mm. because not one time did you look over and go, <clears throat> like this. And, and that was what I was like, because I knew your range. Like, I've experienced you as a fan, uh, as me as a band leader, as you as a band leader, on stage, in the studio, us both as sidemen with other people. Mm. I'd like to think I know what's going on when I look over at you. Mm -hmm. I know when it's good. I know when things are a little bit awkward. I know, but I also know how we need to work together to make them better, to get them to where we need them to be. And that moment of being in that room was like, oh, well, this is the test. This is it. If, If I pass this test... I'm pretty pretty much guaranteed that I can navigate any other situation because it was so delicate. Now, where did that come from? When I look at your history, it's like really loud. Mm. Kenton is loud. Weather Report is loud. You know, I, you know, not in a bad way. It's just the nature of 17 people being on loud. stage or Jacko with his stack of amps. And, and didn't... Oh, sorry, go on. I just... you. Know, Zavadal once complaining to Jocko, you know, Jocko, you're, you're too loud. Okay. <laughs> Jocko would point 
to his acoustic amps. Yeah. And he had like two or four of them, I think, <laughs> at big. this point. He goes, those amps are, the, are set at the same volume as when I backed up Phyllis Diller at the Sunrise, some musical theater in the round, like in the Everglades. Yeah. The Sunrise Theater back in 19... 19- Whatever he goes, I'm not too loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. He was hilarious. It, it uh, definitely seemed like Weather Report got louder, though, in the period where you were in the band. Oh boy! Well, and not I, because of you, just no, in general. I was a heavy hitter, but uh, Joe um, was getting really loud. Okay, his his. Uh, I remember we did a. Uh, a pair of concerts uh, for a Newport Jazz Festival at Lincoln Center. And I, he was so loud, the first concert. And, and he agreed to turn down. And oh, wow. the second one was much better. Okay. You know, um, he would, yeah, he would, Joe would usually be the guy that kind of pushed the, 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 the level of the stage volume up. Which is crazy because I hear like way more like Max Roach and Joe Morello in you than I do like, you know, the frantic sort of buddy or those those guys. So where did that like transition come to like into your trio, for instance? Mm. Like transition isn't the quietest thing. You know, those couple of early albums are not the most. No. Definitely not like the Palladanius and John Taylor stuff or the stuff with Pasquar and Carp or Derek. Well, I mean, the ECM stuff was uh, just the result of you know, we're all in the same room. Right. Uh, piano lids wide open. Um, the, the, the bare minimum of, of gobo walls. Sure. Uh, and, you know, music's a lifelong learning process. Uh, I'm, I'm going to jump forward quite a few years from sure. the ECM stuff to, uh, I was doing a Seth MacFarlane recording oh, at yeah. Capitol. And uh, Rich Breen was engineering, wonderful engineer. Yeah. And we're in the, we're all in the same room. So the drums are in the room, the saxes are here, the brass section's there. Old school. <laughs> string sections yeah. in B, which was an adjoining room yeah. that we, we kept open. And uh, I follow all the rules of big band drumming, and we go in for the first playback, and it's horrible. Oh. To, to my ears. And I, you know, I, it's not just the drum mics that are hearing the drumming. It's the saxophone mics, it's the drum mics. So the, the drum sound gets very wide and washy and diffuse. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I had that, the, the light bulb moment. This is why Alvin Stoller played the way he played. This is why, you know, Jack Sperling made those choices. Yeah. Why Shelley Mann, why Irv Collar, and, you know, any number of drummers. Yeah. So um, I think the worst thing, uh, uh, especially if you want to play kind of traditional music, uh, was the uh, the drum booth, you know, and, and uh, drummers who got so used to being in the booth, and well, they could just turn it down or turn it up and, and have all sorts of control, um, which is fine, but it's very easy to, to overplay. All right, so... Taking it even further, um, we were in like day three or four of the session, and Joel McNeely was a producer and, and the arranger, great writer, 
Joel and I have known each other for years. He, uh, we went to the same high school, Interlochen wow. Arts Academy, yeah. not at the same time. Uh, but Joel uh, was very gracious and said, you know, I, I'm doing a lot of film work these days, and this has not been my area of, of, of expertise or sure. whatever. So he said, do me a favor. If anything seems jive or, or corny, let me know. <laughs> sure. So I'm not saying a thing, because I mean, right. it's, just, it's just great. Um, the, the drum parts were generated from the, I think, uh, Sibelius files. So I'm seeing fills, but I'm not seeing what the brass are doing. So the, the drum parts weren't really crafted the way right. I want to see them. So I was spending a lot of time, you know, getting out of the where the drums were and, and through the forest of mic stands, whatever, <laughs> and asking the trumpets, what yeah. do you have? Yeah. Yeah, just, um, and... Uh, and uh, so I, I decided, uh, let's change that process. The, uh, the first pass, they never keep. So I'm just going to play. I'm just going to play quarter notes on the ride cymbal. And I had a pencil in my left hand. And okay, something there. Yeah. I should know. So then I knew kind of where to look. And as I'm listening back, I could make the notations without being kind of caught off guard. Right. But it feels good. It feels really good. All right? Chuck Berghoffer's playing bass. Oh, yeah. And uh, 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 we do, you know, three takes, whatever, get get the perfect take. And everyone's like kind of high-fiving. And everyone's happy. And I look over at Chuck, and I go kind of, he goes, what, man? I said, it doesn't swing as much as the first time we played it down. He With goes, the yeah, you know, you know something? You're right. <laughs> so I, I went to Joel and said, Joel, could we do this one more time? Said, uh, yeah, why? I said, I just think we can get it to swing more. Sure, uh, you know, let's ask Seth. And Seth's having fun. He's like, right. yeah, why not? <laughs> the trumpet players were not happy. Yeah. But we do it one more time. And we, so we get, I'm just playing quarter notes. We get to the shout chorus, eight measure. Nothing. No comment. Wow. Pow. And so I catch the last eighth note on the end of four yeah. bar eight. That's it. Whole shout chorus, one note. <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> So, uh, can I be profane? Please. Really? Have 100%. All right. <laughs> so, I, I went up to, to Seth as we're listening back. I said, yeah. I said, you know, the reason I wanted to do it, I said, the drums were too explicit on, on the other take. I said, it's kind of like pornography. And without missing a beat, he just leans over. He goes, yeah, I know what you mean, man. A lot of us, we like to feel the pussy through the panties first. <laughs> oh I don't God. know if we should keep this. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> oh, that but, should be the opening quote of the podcast. But that's great. Uh, that's I'm breaking your confidence, but all good. Um, I mean, when we were mixing my album that you played on Theatre by the Sea, first track, very very simple brushes, and my engine, we're mixing it. My engineer leans over and he's like, um, Yannick, yeah, we are. 
one minute and 53 seconds into the tune and Pete still hasn't played the kick drum. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> and he said, and it's perfect. You know, like, so I, yeah, I definitely appreciate that. Well, it's, you. yeah. And, and this is, this is not the only way to do it. It's just, it's one way. Right. And, and, and of it, course you played on hearts and numbers. I mean, there's a, the other end of the spectrum of like being big and, Catching everything, and that, yeah. that really works. And, but the, the I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the snare drum hoop thing because uh, uh, it's it drives me nuts. When I, As a and, bass player, it drives me nuts if that's all I hear all night because I'm just deaf at the end of it. You know yeah, what I mean? it's, it just wipes out the sound of the band. And, and, and then what else happens, what drummers don't realize, is that all the interplay... Isn't making it out front because right. everything has getting to be buried. Yeah. adjusted for that. What was the dynamic like? Uh, it was you and Mark Johnson in, in Gary Burton's band, right? With Matheny? Yeah. Yeah. What was the dynamic like with that? With <laughs> Pat was loud. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Moving on. No. <laughs> and Mitch Foreman, I, I believe, right? Yeah. Okay. I, it just, I just, Pat. Guitar wasn't that loud, but the the his rolling. Oh, the I mean, synth, you know, yeah. he we had the synclavier, and that was set up, and that was a whole big production. But it was, it I think it was mainly the, that he had a rolling synth. Yeah. That Synchrotron, was loud, super loud, huh? Yeah. That, wow. It always it because of the way you guys play with Abercrombie and Skull and the, like the bass desires. I always knew it was possible to have everyone in the right place. Yeah, that, that, that never got that never got too loud. Right when we did the uh, we did the tribute to John Abercrombie, um, I was astonished by how loud a couple of the drummers and and it just rate you know and I'm like well you know Sco's loud Sco's not loud right Sco's loud because the drummer is playing so, so darn loud yeah. you know I mean I've I've played even recently you know a few times with John and it's I mean, we did a concert uh, by now, I'd maybe say a year and a half ago or so, with Franco Ambrosetti. Scott Colley was playing yeah. bass. Yuri Kane was playing piano. Um, live yeah. concert. It was... John's sensitive to my ear. Yeah. Yeah. He even it's, has an album called Quiet. Like, yeah. the guy can play quiet. <laughs> you know, and and the way, like, Adam Deitch plays. I mean, it's and just... That, yeah. Boom. You know. And he's intense, but... It's never, yeah, which is crazy because the situations in which he finds himself could lend themselves so easily to just bashing, bashing. But it's so intense at a low volume. I think that's what I like about you, Adam. Brian Blade is another great one. Cooking at a low volume yeah. is just like the simmer gets so interesting, simmer, and that's yeah. why Adam's one of my favorite drummers. And yeah. I, I told him so on Facebook, and he got b- bothered by it. I think. <laughs> he said, "Come on, man, don't don't make me live up to that." <laughs> He's a like, sorry. Um, because he, it, it just has this beautiful. Uh, all right, you guys want the master class? Yes, they do. Absolutely. Watch, <laughs> and, and I know you've seen this. Watch the Aretha Franklin Amazing Grace. Oh yeah. <laughs> Look at the body language yeah. of the rhythm section. How relaxed yeah. they are. Yeah, it's amazing. Right? Yeah. It's just like. You know. How was talking about Skull briefly? How was um, how was your relationship with Charlie Hayden? I know you did that record, Time on My Hands, with Lovano. 
Oh, Is that right? Uh, well, I, yeah, I was producing at the. Uh, uh, but, you know, I got to, to play with Charlie a few times. The, the last time was, was, I think, one of the last times he might have played. Oh, wow. Dark. Ols put together a, a thing at um, uh, Vitello's. Okay. And and Charlie showed up and then wow. came up to play wow. and then didn't want to stop. And it wow. was just it was wonderful. That's beautiful. Yeah. He you know, Charlie kind of saw into the heart of things in a way that most most of us just don't have the ability to. He, he strikes me like he didn't really care what anyone thought. You know what I mean? The way he played, it was kind of... Yeah, I, I, to be honest, Yannick, I don't even know if that's a term that... If, if he thought of it in those terms. Even, right. You know. oh, well, I think, yeah. Yeah, actually, as I said it, I was like, well, most great musicians don't care what anyone else thinks. I think that's what makes them great musicians. But just when I think about the amount of people even that ask me or perhaps yourself as a teacher about like, how do you break through into that area of freedom, into that flow state, into that, you know, just unbridled progression in your journey. I mean, you know, I learned a, gr- a great thing from you oh. we were, when we were recording in Italy and, and I was, uh, <laughs> you, you came up to, you came up to me very frustrated and you said, he didn't, you know, he didn't ask you to produce this. Cause I was, and and I real you know it was a that was like I said damn he's right you know right. and I had to step outside and think on that because right. and it's I thought I was starting to like just talk myself out of out of working in town here because it, it, you know it's funny on one hand people would come up to me you know Gene Cipriano bless his heart. Um, he said, Pete, he said, you know what I love about you? I said, what? He said, you don't give a shit. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would say something and then people will turn around and like mouth, like, thank you. Okay. And, then, and I would get frustrated. Like, why am I the only guy right. speaking up about this stuff? Sure. Um, and then I, w- I was doing this one recording and the guy said that's good but, but I want the brush solo I want it to be like really violent really <laughs> and I I kind of smiled and I, I held up the brush and I said I said hey you know what you see is what you get <laughs> <laughs> I said I, I, I don't do that you know I, wow. I'm sorry so he, what restored my faith um, in recording was uh, I got flown to Iceland. Very nice. And it was insane. I, I cut my reunion visit at my old high school in Ilocan Arts Academy a day short, catch a flight out of Chicago overnight to Reykjavik. I met there. Almost a five-hour drive up to the Ooh. northern part of, excuse me, of Iceland. Um, you could, uh, Almost a five-hour drive to uh, this part of Iceland, and um, the project was 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 kind of a uh, to highlight or, or create a calling card for this uh, uh, 
like in residence studio type of thing, okay. uh, whatever you call that. Um, so there's this amazing hotel they've teamed up with and the studio, and they're not adjacent. I mean, right. it's a, because I don't think anything's adjacent in Iceland. <laughs> and uh, the keyboard players, they were a pair of, of, of uh, synth players who worked a lot with Bjork, a couple of percussionists. Uh, Matthew Garrison was playing bass because he has a uh, family yep. in, in Iceland. Uh, and then this wonderful singer uh, who, for lack of... Uh, uh, she reminded me more of Wayne Shorter than uh-huh. just about any music. Uh, and it was all it's kind of vocalese praise. and improvisation. Yep. She was, and the, everything was improvised. Just you know, start playing some... you know, yeah. kind of, which, which could be... Yeah. A recipe for dumb, <laughs> but um, man, it's some of the. It's just like this was fun. It was really, really fun. And then um, just there a day and a half, and, and flew back, back to here. <laughs> the Northern Lights made an appearance. Very nice. Um, and and then I I came back to town, and 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 then it was more of you know play this or, or play that. And yeah. I'm just becoming less and less a fan of that. When, if ever, have you felt the most pressure to be yourself? The most? The most pressure to be yourself. If ever, I mean. Is that pressure? That's, that's always an opportunity, I think. Great. That's, that's, a, that's a relief valve, I think, to be yourself. Um, you have a very... Um, well-known past as a musician and you know not necessarily that oh we need this or we need this aggressive brush thing but the expectation of well we really liked you playing on 830 or, or, or oh. port of entry or oh that you know like is there a line that you have to draw at some point and just say well you know what that was 40 years ago and yeah now we're yeah. into something else or somebody once uh, sent me a track and um I was recording at home, and and at a certain point, I, I, I just said, "You know what? This 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 was not a good idea. You don't owe me anything. Right. I'll take care of the engineer. You don't get you don't get my tracks. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, that's still I'm still trying to figure out the best way to handle remote recording. Sure. Um, uh, it's usually best when the client can come. Be present because then they can give you an immediate note. Sure. You, 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 you craft a whole take and you kind of pour your yourself into it, and and uh, and you don't like the gift to be uh, disregarded too much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, that that was one of the COVID challenges, uh, and, and now post COVID. But uh, I, you know, I mean. The, the very nature of, of, of recording has changed. Um, we're all kind of making uh, making our own our own music or sure. becoming part of some film project, but there's not a whole lot of big budget records. No, so. forget it. I um, Steve Smith, Vital Information, we did a new record a couple of few months ago, and just to get the email and say we're going to be six days in the studio was astonishing in 2022 yeah. to spend that amount of time making music in one place all together in the same room nice was yeah what part of the country we did it in uh, in new york 
New York? Yeah, and Garzone came down from Boston and played on a record, which wow. was amazing, and, and many areas as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it was... Oh, I can't wait to hear it. Man, yeah. We're playing next week, if you're around. Catalina's three nights. The tour really? starts, yeah. So, ah. Yeah. Could be, a, could be a hang. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah, you yeah, and Steve yeah. go like all the way back to All the way back to like camp. 1973, I think. I met Vinny when I was on the Kenton band. Okay. He, he was in high school. And then uh, at Berkeley, I yeah. ran into him there. I, so, I, yeah, I, I, I knew a lot of... Um, Am I right in believing that you played an orchestra with Kenny Aronoff? Well, it, at uh, Indiana University. At Indiana, right. Yeah, but we were both there as students. Um, like all these Kenny, lives crossing in the... Yeah, <laughs> Kenny was the, was, the, uh, was the star. He was the rock star okay. of the orchestra. Still with the sunglasses Percussion. back then? No, no. <laughs> Not no. yet. Um, uh, he played a little bit of drum set and, and you know, I trust he won't mind my saying. I mean, he was not regarded much okay. you, know, by, you know as a drum set player he, he he was in some blue note you know records tune cover band and then he was in the <laughs> steely dan cover band it's, um cool. or a band that played steely dan right that. and then i remember uh shortly after i uh, moved to los angeles and i was in weather report um Kenny came out to visit, and and we went out to grab some beers. I was living in Encino, okay, and we're we're, we're at a bar, and uh, basically what I remembered from the conversation was uh, he said, "Yeah, I'm in this band, and this guy's really busting my balls about the way I play, and and you know I don't know if I should stay in it or not." And I I can't remember if I gave him advice one way or the other. I, I, my memory would like to think that, hey, well, that sounds good. Why don't you stick with right. it? You know? But anyway, that was John Cougar. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. And, um, uh, but yeah, he was, uh, you know, uh, credit uh, Kenny that he had the fortitude and, and the humility to, to uh, and it was, a, you know, uh, his situation was not that different from uh, Andy Newmark's. Okay. When uh, when the late Jim Gordon came in to play something, mm-hmm. and Andy said, "Do you mind if I watch?" And, and wow. Kenny did that. Do you mind if I watch and, wow. and learn? That's great. Um, but but when we were at school together, yeah, Kenny was incredible, uh, timpanist, marimba player. That tune did okay. the whole. So we did this one concert. Now I I returned to Indiana after being on the road with Kenton for three years. Right. So right. I had left the gig to come back to school. Everyone else, all my classmates, can't wait to leave school to get the game. (laughs) So I'm struggling a little bit with with motivation and who am I, blah, 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 all that stuff. Meanwhile, my teacher is very concerned about my touch because I got very heavy-handed. Okay. Um, uh, So he comes up on stage, Professor George Gaber, and goes up to Kenny. The bravo, great job, shakes his hand. Went up to another percussionist, Bravo, good job. Uh, it might have been Rebecca Kite. Uh, then Judy Moonert, who uh, became a, a well-known professor in, somewhere in Michigan. Um, bravo, great job. And so I'm waiting for my Bravo. I, I played Temple Blocks in this okay. piece. <laughs> and Gaver comes up to me in front of all of us. He just says, I want to see you in my office tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock. Ouch. And, <laughs> and just leaves. <laughs> so, um, 
you know, oh. all right. So I get up early and drive to campus and knock on his door at 8. And before I, I think I even had a chance to say, what's up? He said, why were you hitting those things so hard last night? <laughs> wow. You know, and subsequently at, at one of our lessons, uh, whatever we were doing, he stopped, motioned me to stop. And um, he pulled out a triangle beater and handed it to me. And he pointed to a triangle in the corner of his teaching studio. He said, mezzo piano, you get one chance. (laughs) (laughs) And I go, ting. He just takes a puff and a cigar. He said, that was too loud. Now get out. And he threw me out. (laughs) Wow. So what did I practice? That's got to make you think a bit, right? Whole notes. Well, on, on, you know, with a stick, on yeah. the ride cymbal. Yeah. But how consistently could I play pianissimo and comfortably? Mm-hmm. And, and what were the mechanics involved with that? What, you know, in terms of, and, and this is something that, that I had to work on yeah. for a long time. Because, you know, that got interrupted by, you know, you joined Maynard Ferguson's band. <laughs> complete pianissimo. Opposite, yeah. <laughs> kidding. Um, and uh, and weather report. I mean, they they liked that I had the power uh-huh. to to play that stuff, and that I knew how to swing, and that I had the big band sensibility. And I think that when I came along, um, the band had uh, uh, because of the percussion. I think Jocko was starting to feel a, a little hemmed in sonically. Oh, I think interesting. Yeah, even between though, you and Manola. Or was it Alex? Well, uh, it was only a quartet when I came. So, oh, okay, okay. so um, Manolo left, and then Alex split. Gotcha. Uh, both of their own accord. Although I think Manolo may have pushed things to, to have gotten fired <laughs> from something. Um, he was uh, uh, an emotional yeah. band member. That's <laughs> uh, the impression I got. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, that band was my favorite version of Weather Report. And I, I, loved, I loved the band with Gravat, yeah. with Alphonse, uh, Mysterious Traveler. Um, but Heavy Weather was, was so sparkling. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, th- I think the, the, the Afro-Cuban element that they just sort of wanted to pull back from that a little bit. Gotcha. Um, and so the quartet kind of provided a chance just for them to, I, you know, I'm I'm not my favorite drummer in Weather Report by any means. <laughs> that's um, interesting. And I, I, that's not false modesty. I just you sure know, I you, you, you do the best you can. I understand. And and I think some of it was actually quite good. You know, some yeah. of the, the the jazz stuff, um, and some of it was me just still struggling to figure out. Um, you talk about telling a story. How yeah. do you, you know? How do you tell a story that's always going this way? Right. It, it, it took a long time for me to realize that. Yeah. You can, you so know, it's it's very interesting. Stories have chapters. Absolutely, and it's very interesting <laughs> as a bass player. And I will, uh, maybe this is a, a advice to other bass players out there to play with you as little or as much as I have. However, you want to look at it. For me, it's more than I ever thought I would do. Um, I've only experienced with you the like the max like full on full force 1980 something weather report thing one time 
which was when we played trains when we were on tour with Chuck Loeb in Tokyo. Ah. And you were transported to this other place. And me and Chuck talked about it. We never said anything to you. We were like, no, this is just, don't talk about this. this just let it happen. And you were transported to this whole other place. Yeah, it sounded of. like Mike Brecker was on stage. It just sounded like there was some force in the room mm. which was taking you to this place. And up until that point, and subsequently, I'd experienced a far less uh, higher ceiling in terms right. of the dynamic um, with you. So that was really interesting to experience all of those things with mm. you and understand. Like, I remember oh, that. Remember this? Yeah. And, uh, that was fun. That was a fun. Oh man, it was such a fun tour. And <laughs> what? Oh, <Uh-oh. laughs> Oh no. Are you going to go wasabi? The, the sushi restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Um, what was, <laughs> no, what, what, what the, the, the greatest moment, um, you know, I, the, I'm sorry, we won't get into the particulars, but That's fine. Um, when when he when he oh, yeah. popped open his, his chopsticks, the oh. the little obi wrapper yeah. just went yep. flying right across the, the sushi chef's <laughs> face, <laughs> and, and and you were seated next. I just you were in yeah. agony. I was dying because it was him and then me and then Chuck and you. I was, and the chef was just looking like, and he's Japanese, so he's very like yeah. respectful of, and, and that was a super high end place as well. Remember the yeah. guy who took us there, the coffee mogul? And it was like in the basement of the Shiseido. Yeah, exactly. Opposite Gizan. near Yamaha. Yeah. Yeah. And it was amazing food, but that was quite was a comical great. thing. Yeah. I want to end on, <laughs> I want to end on one thought. Let's make it a musical one, not a wasabi one. Okay. Um, when you, would appear on a record and you would be, only be on one or two tracks. And I'm thinking the Mike Brecker record, maybe it's Don't Try This at Home. Uh-huh. And is it Talking to Myself? One track, or? Talking to Myself. Talking to Myself. Okay. My memory is still functioning. I guess Don is producing, Gronick is producing this, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's a great story how that... Oh, it is. How that track. I didn't even know there was a story behind it, but so, so go ahead, please. Oh, no, no. You want to ask? All I was asking, and maybe the story answers that, is when you step into a situation like that, now me as a younger person hearing that from afar, it's a, bo- it's a record, it's a big thing. But you're in this small part of it, yet it's still, the whole thing still tells the story. Uh, Are you aware of the rest of no. the cycle? Okay. So um, I was doing, uh, this was my third album called Motion Poet, right. which was a fairly ambitious project. Um, we were recording, uh, we, we chose a studio called Master Sound Astoria, oh, yeah. and and uh, we visited the place on an earlier trip to New York and James Farber and and uh, and I remember the the guy that ran the studio was talking about how many like 150 feet the grounding, <laughs> and I looked yeah. at James like pretty great right and he's like yeah that's in 57 man like he was I don't know so. Um, and this studio, by the way, the the the, um, it, the the recording facility had been built for, I think, the U.S. Army. Hmm. It was a production facility, and the ISO booth was like like a like a, 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 a bunker, a, a bunker. Like an, I mean, <laughs> it was the quietest. I mean, so we put Mark in there. The yeah. I mean, the bass sound was extraordinary. Yeah. Anyway, so recording this album, and um, I wanted for Mike to solo on one tune. 
through a series of, you know, and Grolnick is producing my album and he's also producing Mike's album. And we work Simultaneously? Out, or in a similar time? Well, Mike's album, I think the bulk of it was done. But, okay. But they wanted, you know, Dom wanted to record this tune of his. Gotcha. So they'd already done the stuff with Jack, I think. I yeah. hadn't heard any of it. Um, uh, so Michael needed a studio mm-hmm. to record this thing and we worked out a deal because I had bought my budget bought lockout time gotcha. for, for like five days nice. or whatever. That, that's just how the story yeah. that Mike could get the studio and, and my drumming in return. If he would overdub the solo, the solo. Wow. So, so Mike agreed <laughs> to the term. So uh, the, the tune is called hero with a thousand faces. Yeah. Um, and his his solo was the second take. If you want to hear the first take, if you go to PeterErskine.com, dot hey, com, hey. um, I think for ninety nine cents you can alternate take. You nice, can download. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, uh, so it's you know it's just extraordinary. And then okay, he did that for me. Now his band showed up, so uh, we were going to record that tune, and so. Uh, my drum setup and sound we already had it was all the motion poets. Perfect. Um, uh, Jeff Andrews came in. That's yep. um, Mike. Stone, right? yeah. Yeah, Stone. Mike came because uh, uh, the guitarists on my album were John Abercrombie and then Jeff Miranov had, yep. had done some stuff. So Mike showed up in Brecker. And uh, as I recall, it was one take. I love that story, <laughs> and and I mean, because you know, uh, you know, we, we I think we just ran it down and just did it, and we liked it. And I mean, Don's stuff, I I sort of knew what Don liked, um, although one time when we were recording Don's album, uh, Hearts and Numbers, Numbers, yeah, uh, I said to Will, like, uh, like I was like, I I, I I got an idea for the intro, and it's. You know, three, four, like like this is genius. And Will just looked at me and said, "That's your idea for every intro." <laughs> and I went, "Yeah, you're right." Okay, that's amazing to end the podcast on a Will Lee story. That's beautiful. And we started with a Will Lee. We did. We did. I got to give Will a call. Hey, Will, sit down. Hey, buddy. <laughs> All right. Thank you, man. Appreciate your time as always. Great pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. 